I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Laura Lex about her commercial novel, Pivot. Laura is an award-winning comedian, actor and writer who lives in Brighton with her husband and her Jack Russell Mackey. In this episode, we discuss why she chose not to describe her character's appearances, how stand-up comedy makes a good partner to writing funny books, and how her writing career began with a tweet that went viral. But first, here's Laura with an excerpt from Pivot. The sea was not expecting to be hit full force with a golf club. To be fair to Jackie, though, she hadn't been expecting to throw it either. Well, technically at the point where she was standing on the beach staring at the sea and holding a golf club with the encouraging words of Roz in her ear, by then she was half expecting to throw it. But not really. Jackie wasn't the golf club throwing type. She'd barely ever looked at these golf clubs before Roz had loaded them into the boot. They were long and heavier than she'd expected. Didn't golf last all day? Golf lasts for hours, she said absently to Roz. How the hell do you lug these around all day without dying? Caddies, said Roz, looking up from removing furry covers from the lumpy clubs. Is that them? Jackie nodded at the little golf sock things. No, these are... Do you know, I don't know what these are. Some sort of warmers? Why would you want the clubs to be warm? I don't know. Maybe it makes the ball go further. So, so what's a golf caddy? Jackie shook her head, losing their thread. This was a common side effect of talking to Rose. It's the person who carries your clubs around for you so you don't get tired, like a servant. Lord, no wonder it's so popular with men. Someone else doing the hard work while you swan around pretending you're the dog's bollocks. Jackie launched another iron hard out to sea and heard the splash as the lengthy pole slapped the surface of the dark water. The lights of Brighton stretched out along the coast and she felt tears pricking at the corner of her eyes again. Have you ever played? She asked Roz, determined to keep talking rather than crying. Was this really happening? Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you here with me today to discuss your novel Pivot. Ah, Thanks for having me. So can you start by introducing the novel for us and telling us what Pivot's all about? Uh, So Pivot is uh, about Jackie Douglas, um, a woman who thinks she has it all. She's completely happy with her life. 
And then one day her husband walks out on her and everything feels a whole lot emptier than it did before. She finds herself retired, so there's no job to fill her day. Her children are grown up and happy and don't need her as intrinsically as they did before. And she suddenly goes, oh, what are my hobbies? And uh, in a roundabout way, ends up starting a netball team. (laughs) As you do. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we've all done it. We've all been a bit bored of a Tuesday and started a netball team. So what was it that inspired you or gave you the idea for this novel? Was it one specific thing or did it come from kind of wanting to tell a particular story? Um, It came from a real mixture of things. So one was wanting to write a book about a whole group of women. Um, And I was trying to think of a a way to get a lot of women into a plot without it being a workplace or that they'd all had babies and so met via that. Um, and and I was sort of looking around and thinking, well, there's a million and one things about men playing sport and that's how they've all met. Um, so why not do it for women? And then at a sort of similar-ish time, um, I'm a stand-up comedian is my main job, I was hosting a show and there was a whole group of women in there who were on a netball social and I just started improvising about how much I hate netball (laughs) um you know going back all over all the half-baked rules I could remember and the different like oh a chess pass and a bounce pass and you can only hold it for three seconds and you can't pivot and it went down so well in the room that I took it home and sort of wrote it up and thought I wonder if this is a thing this like nostalgia for netball um So that sort of maybe inspired like, oh, sport, a team, um, that could really work. And then I sort of ended up, you you know, sort of you sort of daydreaming about characters and, and they sort of I don't know, to me, they sort of drift in. And I was sort of thinking, like, what? what sort of women might be lonely and looking for something else? And then I tried to think of sort of all the different versions of your life where it's gone a little bit off track. You're not super miserable in, you know, the end of the, the world, but you, you're missing something and why you might seek out companionship. Mm. And obviously Jackie and, main, well, most of her friends are older women. How did you feel about kind of, because she's an um, early retiree, how did you feel about kind of writing an older character or older characters without that kind of awkward stereotype of, you know, you're writing them as elderly or you're writing them as too old. How does it feel to kind of approach writing uh, women that are older than you and be able to write them authentically? I hope I have done it authentically. I based sort of a fair amount of it on my mum and friends of my mum's. My mum's about Jackie's age. But also I sort of thought, well, I'm 36 now and I... I think when I was 20, I thought 36-year-olds were very different to how I feel now. So I sort of took that approach with thinking about the way Jackie thought and felt, that I think one day I'm just going to wake up and be 58 and feel the same as I do at 36 and the same as I did at 20. So I sort of tried to write her sort of without leaning too hard into the fact that she's a lot older. She, She is at a different space, but I think that is going to happen to everybody, you know? Like, it, I I tried to think of it as age isn't something that has happened to old people and no one else. It's it's all of us. We're all on our way there, hopefully. 
hopefully. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it struck me that quite unusual to read a book where it felt like authentic, like someone writing old characters, but they didn't they didn't feel like you'd suddenly imagined them as grey haired with a stoop. You know, it was like you'd really thought about how can I make them like a real 58 year old and someone who because I think Jack is the sort of character that she doesn't feel 58 she's not in her in her inside her I think if you asked her she'd probably think you know partly would be I don't know in her 30s and I feel like when I've read books where they've been characters been in her 60s and I've thought of my mum who's in her early 60s you know my mum my mum's pretty cool and, and she would chop at you know Zara and faces she wouldn't yeah. be, you know she wouldn't be necessarily in MS looking at a twin set exactly the same like my mum still works she would do all sorts of long walks together like miles and miles and miles she is terrible with her phone and how that works and all technology but she's not doddering about she's early 60s it's not this like it's not this catapulting into geriatric mm. level and, and the same with like my dad's a bit older my dad we've just celebrated his 70th and the man still plays 90 minutes of football every week, like with people who are my age. Uh, so I don't, I think like this idea that the age you've got tells you anything about the character is a little bit broken, you know. So I sort of didn't really see there being a, a barrier to writing and it and imagining of an older version of myself or or mm. things like that. And I and I hope for readers who are closer to that age, they they weren't sort of turning every page going, oh, this is a young person screwing up this imagining. Um, I wanted her to, you know, I, yeah, like, I don't know, for me, like early 60s, you've still, you know, fingers crossed, got 30 years of your life left. You're not done. You're right in the middle of it. You're busy. You've got stuff to do. But it, it for Jackie anyway is this transition phase. Um yeah, which which comes throughout your whole life, I think, and sort of writing in the other characters who were also in those transition phases. And I read an interview with you where you said it was a really conscious decision not to describe your characters' looks or their bodies. Um, and you instead focused on their feelings and maybe the way they felt about themselves. So can you explain why you made that decision? Yeah, it's two-pronged, that one. One, I don't have a very good visual imagination. I think in words. I, I don't picture images very well. I, my imagination is often the spellings of words. So it's not to say I don't understand what you mean if you say she's blonde and six foot eight. I kind of get it, but I'm not picturing anything. I'm just sort of putting that information in a list in case it's useful later. So it's partly that. And then it was the other half of it was... I mean, maybe I'm just a bad writer, but I'd sit down and I'd be like, trying to describe Jackie. And in my head, Jackie's like, I think she's maybe blonde. Um, she looks a little bit like my mother-in-law, I think, in my head. She's got blue eyes. So then I was sort of like, right, okay, how do you describe that? You know, she's got fluffy, blonde hair, or, uh, uh, blonde highlights. or And then, okay, leave that. Let's do the eyes. Um, she's got sparkling blue eyes. Well, maybe they're not sparkling. Maybe they're just blue eyes. And then it was just becoming this list of this is a blonde woman with blue eyes and she weighs 10 stone two because I, I, I don't want to say, oh, she's fat or she's skinny because that is a judgment call. Like she has some body fat. So at that point, 
what are you doing with this description? So I just thought, does it matter what she looks like? Do, can we all just picture who we're starting to build up as our own thing? And I'll just let you run wild with it because it just, it was either just going to be this functional list of attributes that was barely, what was that for? Or it was going to turn into these judgment calls about what kind of blue eyes or like, I don't know if I've ever read about a female character with green eyes without going, she's the baddie. <laughs> she's going to steal someone's mind. She's got green eyes. That's what they do. And so it, you know, it just falls into these what women are. And I didn't want to do it. I sometimes find that if you're reading something and then, then there's almost like a, a breakaway paragraph or a couple of lines where it's almost like the writer's gone right at this point, I have to describe how they look. And mm-hmm. I'm always a bit like, oh, I'm never very keen. Or you get someone that looking in a shop window or in a mirror purposefully, just so that the author can describe what they look like. And it's always a little bit clunky. And I've always been a bit like, mm, I don't really want to necessarily say what they look like. But I have had editors before that have gone, I think you need to put, you know, they've got brown hair or something. Yeah. Uh, but how do you, if, you're, if you say that you don't necessarily write or think about things visually what's that like for you kind of just describing anything even if it's like a house or landscape or anything do you is that something you feel like you have to go back afterwards and add details in what is that like for you I think so like for Jackie's house the image I have of that in my head is uh, a friend of my mum's house (laughs) that seems to me like the epitome of a suburban detached house so I sort of have that in my head um and so there were descriptions of things like that that I was like oh I think that tells you something about the way she lives like the kitchen being spotless or they've got powder blue sofas or there's the little lead diamonds on the windows like it's building up a sense of who and where she lives and no one has to know that I'm picturing a house around the corner from mum and dad's house um But I find a lot of the time when I'm reading books, I imagine where it is and I'm sort of starting to think about it. And then if the writer contradicts me, I just go, no, you've got that wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't then alter where I've put them. Mm. So I think I think it made it less important to me to describe the layout of the house or how every went but things like so you know she goes to a netball tryout in the sports center and things like the glaring lights or that like foamy green flooring um or the long wooden benches that felt like it was atmospheric to me rather than functional physical description because it's that you know, when you walk into one of those sports centres and the ceiling's so high and you just feel, oh, I do anyway, I feel so small and useless and, like, this is not my natural habitat. So it was more about reminding the reader of all the things that might make one feel uncomfortable in that space rather than going, here you go, here's the painting of it so that you can yeah. play with the puppets on it. I guess then when you're, and I guess that's a good a bit of advice really, when you're describing a setting or a location, there has to be a reason you're doing it. It's got to be because your characters are interacting with it or feeling some way about it. And I think, like you say, when you're reading a book, you do end up building this picture in your mind, even if the author hasn't given you any 
real descriptions I'm, I'm exactly the same as you I think I've read books before where I'm picturing I don't know the love interest as a you know tall dark and handsome and then they turn around and say they're blondes I'm like what Nine? Yeah, because if you don't fancy a blonde or whatever, then you're like, oh, no, I'm less interested in this yeah. character. I can, I can totally understand it for books like, you know, if you're writing a thriller, mm. maybe you need to describe the room because you're leaving clues to where the murder weapon was hidden or whatever. But yeah, I, I felt like for this book, it's so much more about the people Yeah, um, that they, they are just front and centre and how Jackie's feeling about everything was way more important. Yeah, because your book does deal with some kind of emotional topics. Obviously, we meet Jackie. And it's quite a funny situation, the fact that she's throwing golf clubs into the sea. But the reason behind it is obviously a, a very painful one for her. And because you are a stand-up comedian, what is that like? Does Do you feel like a, a pressure to write a particularly funny book? And do you feel like um, it's, it's kind of more challenging than writing a stand-up routine? How has it been for you to kind of, have that pressure of I don't know being funny on the page compared to doing a stand-up it was quite nice really because you write in different forms in a book stand-up very much has its own rhythm and each comedian has their own rhythm and their own voice and so you hit a point where you're like I'd love to talk about x or y but are there enough gigs where there's an audience that wants to hear about that? And, you know, if if you've got a 20-minute stand-up set, you ideally need to have a punchline, you know, maximum every 30 seconds for me, I think. like I don't like to do big setups. I'm not like a big wind-up for a four-minute story and then have a payoff. Um, so writing a book let me be more gently funny or just play with... Um, a, a collaboration of words that I thought was amusing but wasn't enough of a laugh out loud gag that you could take it to people on a Saturday night and go here you go it was worth you getting a babysitter and you know bothering to come out um and playing with sort of funny ideas just the idea of two women stood on the beach in the dark throwing golf clubs into the sea you wouldn't I wouldn't really be able to tell that as a story like a hypothetical story on stage and you need more context and the book allowed me to kind of develop these real bigger things and and longer sentences and, and stand-up has all you know when you're telling a joke the last word you say in the sentence needs to be the last thing the audience need to complete the picture and then to laugh and if you've still got more words to say, you're talking over the laughter that they're doing. Whereas a book, you could be more melodic and and play a lot more, I think. So do you think that comedy and writing kind of make a good companion? Because I know, obviously, your style of stand-up is observational humour and you do do storytelling within that. So do you think they make a kind of good a good pairing? Yeah, I liked doing the two of them together because also I don't know if I could have written a book without the release of stand-up because a book needs, you just don't get any feedback for so long. <laughs> it's so scary. You Like with stand-up, even if I'm working on a new special or something, I take that chunk by chunk out to audiences. I test it out. We see how that goes. It goes in the hour. Then I try out the hour for a year or so then we record it then I put it out and that's the release but actually I already know it's 
good at that point. Otherwise, it wouldn't have gone in the show. But the book, oh, my life. I just sat by myself and wrote it, showed it to one editor who either liked it or didn't like it, and we adjusted. And then, and then we printed loads of them and just put them in shops. And there was no sense of like, well, if the audience come back and they don't like X, we'll adjust it so that it's better. You just, and that, that is so alien as a stand-up. It was real, that was so hard to get no feedback. <laughs> I hated that. <laughs> and are you someone that reads real reviews? Because obviously when you're on stage, you're getting that instant feedback, but because you're not getting it writing a book, do you go and seek out feedback or not? No, I haven't really. Um, because... I think I think I know I like it and I think I know what kind of book it is. I know what criticisms people might have. People that were looking for a weighty tome about weighty things are going to think it's a bit fluffy. Fine, it is a bit fluffy. I wanted to write a book that was a bit fluffy. Um, people that, you know, so I think I know I, what the book is and I think it's a good version of what I wanted the book to be. And I think any negative reviews of it will go to my heart, but they will be reviews from people who wanted a different book. They, I don't think if if you picked up that book wanting a story of female friendship that was a bit funny and, and nostalgic for netball, you would go, this wasn't it. <laughs> so um, I take reviews too seriously and too much to heart and 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 I like the book and I think it's a good I think it is what I set out to write so there's no point in going and looking for that upsetting feedback just to hurt myself mm. and like you said it's done now it's out in the world you yeah can what can you do yeah exactly <laughs> so obviously as you mentioned friendship is such an important part of this novel when um, not only just Jack and Rose but also the friends they make on the team obviously some books like would that would fit in this genre would be maybe lean towards the romance side that's not to say there isn't any romance in this book but what was it about friendship that you wanted to focus on I didn't want the answer to Jackie to be replacing Steve or that there'd been anything wrong with their relationship their relationship had been what she wanted um and it had run its course and it was done and I wanted the idea that your friends are maybe a little bit more than society allows them to be a lot of the time. You know, we have this idea that our partner and our family, it's blood and it's marriage and it's pew, pew, pew. But actually, I think for a lot of people, your friends are and can be everything. And so if you fall out with them, the hurt is as big there as it is in a marriage or in a sistership or whatever and and I sort of wanted to look at the ways you can hurt each other without meaning to or how you prioritize the people around you who are helping you when you're broken you know sometimes you are your worst friend when other people are trying to be a good friend to you because you know you're you maybe you get a bit selfish when you're broken sometimes and and how do you come back from that and how do you bounce back so yeah I wanted it to be this idea that friendships are really really complicated and can be as complicated as as a let's say sexual relationship but that's not really what I mean but like a romantic relationship you know like a life partner relationship <laughs> 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So we've got to talk about the netball because obviously that makes a, a big part of the novel. And so, I mean, you mentioned nostalgia. Was that the reason why you went and chose netball? And how did you go about writing it? Because I noticed in your acknowledgements, you thanked a couple of your friends that kind of dragged you in for a game. So <laughs> tell us about the writing of the netball. Did you have to do, I'm imagining you had to do a hell of a lot of research and hands-on research, I'm guessing. Well, yeah, I did go down. I played once, I think, with my friends and I really hated it. I didn't do it again. <laughs> I went down and watched a couple more times to just get the idea of what these leagues were like. Because the thing about netball is, for me, it's a game I learned at school and I've not really thought about it until about five, seven years ago, a load of my friends started playing it on a Tuesday night down at the local university courts and I couldn't join in because being a stand-up evenings are when I work but they loved it and some of some of them stopped playing and, and some of them carried on and then they formed their own team but then they would jump across into other people's teams if they were short and then they'd switch to the Sunday league which was the next up league or whatever um and then when netball had sort of crashed into my life again via the stand-up routine that I was working on I started looking into it and it was crazy to me how um how popular netball is. The the viewing figures for televised netball have never been higher and they grow year on year. Wow. And the Super League, I think that's what it's called, uh like Australia, New Zealand, a lot of the Commonwealth countries they play it and the viewing figures are very high. England are one of the best um or it might be GB, I'm not sure. Um, but they're one of the best netball teams in the world. And it gets nothing. Um, and then 
I started thinking about it from a stand-up perspective. I'd started writing a lot of material about how netball is one of the biggest problems. Um, Well, I have a joke and a routine about how netball is the start of the gender pay gap because the boys get taken one way and get taught football and it is the beginning of this lifelong opening up of a world where football is everywhere and it you know it's an icebreaker it's a job it's a passion it's it's everything and the girls get shunted the other way and given netball which we struggle to learn for 10 years and then we leave school and it's not playing in the local pub it's not on that we can go and see locally it's not something that you can sit down in your job interviewing oh who do you support oh (laughs) yeah me too like so we just don't get given that and there's no reason for that. Um, we could have been taught football. We could have had those doors opened up to us. So it felt kind of like a netball is this perfect thing that they don't really like, but they like each other. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it to be this this sense of like, it's not the activity that's keeping them coming back. It's It's each other and it's this need and it's this hour a week where you are your body and you are running hard and your chest is busy and your brain is busy and you are something other than a mother or a retiree or a stuck millennial who can't work out how they've gone so wrong already at 30. You are trying to reach as far as you can for the ball. And having chatted to my friends that play netball, they were like, yeah, netball is this switch off. I'm. It's so fast and it's so difficult that it's all I'm doing for that hour. I just get an hour where I'm not thinking about tomorrow. And it was like, yeah, that's what I wanted to give the characters. Mm, and it works so well, because like you say, in that moment, it's all about the game and there's no external worries about what's going on in their personal lives or their professional lives. And you can see why it's such an appeal for them. Yeah. Later on in the novel, one of your characters is diagnosed with a condition called um, encephalitis, which you said was inspired by your mum's experience. So can you tell us a little bit about that and why you wanted to raise awareness of this condition? Yeah. So my mum had it in 2010 and it was awful. It came out of nowhere as far as we were concerned and it just knocked us all for six especially her and then has been a really difficult and non-linear recovery and I chatted to mum about it because I've not really seen it come up in much stuff you know and and when you're thinking what's the thing that my character can have that can cause a problem you're like a stroke or heart disease or you know all these different things and then I was thinking right okay I don't really have much connection to those. I don't know about them. And I'm quite a sensitive person. I don't want to get that wrong because that is a lot of people's lives. So I sort of talked to mum about using the encephalitis and she said, yes, like more people should know that that's on the cards. More people should know that that's a thing and what the symptoms are. So we, yeah, we talked about using it. And I think it's a condition that it really can affect your thinking patterns afterwards, which for somebody like, you know, the the character, Roz, who is so clever and fast and busy and just loves to be challenged, loves to think quickly, talk quickly, answer back. 
to have your ability to reach for information and have it just out of grasp is so frustrating. And I've watched it with mum. She's so smart. She's so clever and quick and uh, things like that. And then she'll go for, to you know, we'll be in a quiz or something and, and they'll say, which band, blah, blah, blah. And, and mum knows and she knows and we know she knows and the word is gone. And it, and I know that that happens to everyone, but I think the recovery from encephalitis just made that so frequent and so much wider ranging. And it's such a hard thing to reconcile with yourself that your mind isn't as organized as it used to be. And I think like a little light on that where you can is could be helpful for other people who still have that to come in their future or have been through it. And I think there's so many things like that that we don't see in fiction so it's it's refreshing to to see it and I think because it touches on your your sense of self and your identity and you mentioned you know Roz is this really um ambitious and smart woman and then to have something like that happen to her just completely knocks her sense of self and her confidence it's frustrating I think well we've all been through different versions of it like I think you know I'm smart and capable and then in 2017 had a complete nervous breakdown and ended up on antidepressants and in therapy and struggling to carry on and that knocked me I was like I don't need pills to carry on with my life and then I sort of had to go actually you do you do and that's okay it doesn't make you less it doesn't make you any less good on stage or you know one of the things I fought against was taking antidepressants because I was like I'm on stage every night trying to do quick comebacks and what if they dull me what if I can't reach that or you know x y and z and and I really struggled to conceive children and that knocked my identity for six I come from a massive family where everybody's got four kids and I couldn't make one and it was like whoa so who am I then if I'm not going to be this mumsy sort of I was so ready to do that so I think these like bashes to who you thought you were just smash you at all times like you know, Jay in the story, she's she's 30 odd. She's clever. She's been to university. She did really well. She walked out, got a job, moved to London. It was all going well. And then there's been recession after recession and nightmare economics. And suddenly she's back in her mum's spare room going, oh, was I not very good at it then? Because the story we get told is that if you're good enough, you'll make it. And actually, not necessarily if everything in the world has conspired to be a financial shit show apologies for swearing you know there's a lot of our generation that have ended up worse off than our parents have and going oh hang on and it knocks you it knocks this idea of who you are you you have to really fight to come back from that and go nope who I am is what I do when it goes wrong not I wasn't only ever going to be this winning version of myself Mm. and as painful as all those things are they make for great conflict in a novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so although this is your debut novel, listeners might also know you from um, a tweet that went viral and then a book that came from that about Jürgen Klopp. And I will confess <laughs> right now that I um, know nothing about football. Oh, uh, me neither, so, me neither. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about this story of how you went viral and then how that became a book? Yeah, it's very silly. So um, it was March of 2020 and it was the week before the first lockdown in the UK. Um, I was up in Glasgow 
doing a weekend of shows, but the it, I don't know if you remember that weekend. It, everything felt so weird. Other countries were shutting down. We weren't yet, and there'd been no real announcement that we might. You couldn't get hand sanitizer for love nor money, and masks weren't really widely available yet. And I found myself in Glasgow. I'd got the sleeper train up. It had been awful. I'd done the first night. There was a strange atmosphere in the club. Like, it was a sold-out night, but about a third of people hadn't come. A lot of us were there going, should we be here? Is this like a spreading event? What is... We don't... We just didn't know. So I sat in my hotel room that night, and I happened to see a clip of a press conference from a football manager where somebody said what do you think about all this coronavirus then what's going to happen and he said I don't know why are you asking me I'm a football manager um ask somebody that knows the answer instead of asking me to speculate and turning that into headlines or something along those lines and I just thought who is this dude (laughs) this is (laughs) the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) Nobody says I don't know anymore. They just answer and then... Um, So I started doing these tweets about how... um, If... How how sensible he was. And so they ended up being these sort of tweets where it was, you know, the idea being I'd be silly and anxious and then he'd be sensible and then we'd kiss. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) it turned into a bit of a thread. Uh, And then... I think I went to bed that Friday night and just sort of didn't really think much of it. And then I woke up Saturday morning and again, just this, I thought I'll just stay in my hotel room today. I think that's my best bet of not catching whatever this disease is that's coming around. So I carried on tweeting. And I think because the internet that day was um, panic or cheerful, um, sexy tweets about a sensible, sensible man, it just went wild And I've had stuff go viral before and I sort of thought, oh, you know, you get a day of lots of retweets and then it dies down. But this sort of didn't. And a few authors like Emma Kennedy and Marianne Keyes were saying, oh, you have to write this as a book. And and lots of people saying, oh, yeah, I buy it. And then so some publishers and literary agents started getting in touch and. And again, I just sort of thought, well, I don't know. Well, it's just some tweets. I don't know. And then you know, got home and the lockdown kicked in and they were serious about doing this book. And to be perfectly honest, I didn't have any other income because of stand-up just being wiped out overnight. And I thought, all right, I'm going to, I'll take these meetings and take it a bit seriously. Um, And then it just, it's, it's, it feels a bit like a fairy tale, but they sort of said, oh, well, you're clearly a writer. If you write the clock book, would you like a deal for a novel as well? And so I just sort of went overnight from this, well, not overnight because of the years of stand-up and all of that, but yeah, they they sort of said, if you write the clock book first and we try to turn it around as quickly as possible and then, hey, have a deal. What novel do you want to write? It's an open blank page, go. Um, and it was kind of magical. Yeah, it's kind of the dream, really. Yeah, like now that I'm trying to get a third novel off the off the ground, I'm like, oh, I had it really easy. <laughs> I mean, it also shows how many people had this fantasy about Jurgen Klopp that you weren't 
well, none of us were aware of until your tweet went viral. Yeah, absolutely. Like that unusual crush. I would never say guilty crush because I think it's really rude to the person you're crushing on. Um, there's nothing guilty about fancying anybody, but the, but this like love of sensibleness rather than rippling muscles or objectifying. You're you're sort of praising the, their behaviour rather than their being. Um, I think yeah, we all were finding that a bit of a turn on. <laughs> So despite the fact that it didn't start with you thinking, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to approach agents, had you kind of always secretly had this dream of writing a novel anyway? Yeah, and I've I've written one before that's unpublished that nobody wanted and always written lots of longer form stuff alongside the stand-up. Yeah, massively. So writing a, a book was just a dream come true and I hope to do more and more of it it's so wonderful having that time with the characters but yeah I I think a few years ago maybe about 2014 ish I finished my you know my first story or first novel and did try and get that published but you know absolutely no response not a return at all so it was it this was a very different experience and like I say now got a literary agent and got a publisher and trying to get the idea away for the next novel and they're suddenly really choosy and you're like oh come on <laughs> can't you just do what you did before just say yeah write what you like this is annoying they want you to write the whole book before they say yes to it and you're like hang mm-hmm. on a minute this is a lot of work <laughs> <laughs> but you have another project on the side which is also about writing which is something you started in lockdown and you kind of it's almost like a a virtual game of consequences which is a game that I always loved as a kid um and you what you would do you use the start of a novel that you'd already written I think and then you got viewers on it was on YouTube I think or on Twitter and you got viewers to help you write the next chapter by voting on various different things which is a concept I love and I think you've just resurrected it am I right yeah I have so yeah we did a couple in the first lockdown I read on YouTube, I read that book that never got published, um, as we know it. I just read it live on YouTube and we do a few chapters each night. And it built up this really lovely following that all sort of made friends and everybody was chatting. And then when I finished the book, I was like, oh, I haven't got another book to read you. Sorry. But I thought, oh, I've got endless time, though. So we we wrote this book to spec, basically. And we did two of those in the lockdown where I write a chapter I give a vote. It might just be, you know, does the character find the thing they were looking for? Or sometimes it's like, who do they meet in the next bit? And sometimes the consequences will be really obvious and sometimes they're a bit more mysterious. So I'll give some options and then I sort of sketch out an idea and then see which wins. Um, And then it was so lovely through the lockdowns to do that, that when the news sort of broke about how high energy prices are going to be and how much food is going up and how difficult this winter is going to be I thought maybe we could do it again through this winter because it's it's free but for the price of your internet connection and the electricity to run your computer um just turn up on a Tuesday night 9 p.m um if you can't make the live one you know you can catch up with it through the week they're all they all sit there um and the chat is just so busy while the story goes on that quite a few people turn up for the chat room element and then re-watch it later on <laughs> because they've missed half the plot. But it's sort of fun and it's silly. And as a writer, it's a lovely exercise because I know my weakness is plot. Um, I love to write all the prose and the description and the characters, but I'm not 
great at building the plot. So it's lovely to have that taken off my list because it depends what they vote for. Mm. So, um, Do you think it's helped your writing or process or your ideas generation when you have to sit down and write novels yourself? Yes, it's made me think about chapters as more like tools so you go what's this chapter for you're not just living with some characters over a period of time things are happening each chapter is uh, got to have a reason what what goes on in it and it's made me be a bit more adventurous with plot I'm quite tend towards naturalism and that can make it a bit boring sometimes because I avoid being too OTT but actually as a reader to a certain extent, you want a little bit of fantasy in this plot. You you don't want to just read a story about a woman having a normal week. You you <laughs> want a bit more to it. So mm. it's made me be a bit braver in that. So is there anything that you know now that you're a published author that you wish you had known right at the start, right at the beginning before you began writing? You're always going to feel like a fraud, no matter how you do it. So there is absolutely no point in reading other people's advice on writing. <laughs> you just, however you do it, if it results in something people want to read, then it's writing. Well done. Um, I felt so like I was a dreadful person because when I wrote both the books, I would write for about 45 minutes a day and then I was bored and I would wander off and do something else. And I was like, how could you possibly think you're a writer? if you don't long to be there at the page for eight hours every day, you should want to do this. And, and you know, I'd read tweets from people with kids and stuff who were like, I just wish I had more time to get on with it. And I'd be like, I've got all the time in the world and I want to watch TV and go for a walk and do sewing. Um, but that's okay. I write really well for 45 minutes and then I wander off and do something else. And I would come up with the same amount and quality if I stretched it over eight hours as mm -hmm. I can bang out. And that's okay. I, th I think that, like this gatekeeping idea of what it is that I I don't know if other people are even doing I think we do it to ourselves yeah but share that it's right the, how you like the it. comparing thing I think you're right and and I I know I cannot write longer than three hours three hours would be my absolute maximum and it would probably be an hour and a half of me sitting there going I hate this why am I doing this rather <laughs> than doing else. but three hours I mean anyone that sits there at nine and can write for I don't know four hours, five hours, who are they? I don't understand them. So there's no point in me trying. No, it's, if it's not you, it's not you. I think me and my husband have a really different approach to stuff. I am electric for a short space of time and I get a lot done, I have really good ideas and then I'm done, I, I fizzle. Whereas he takes about an hour to warm into the project and then can sit with the utmost focus for hours. Um. But we kind of come out with about a similar quality. We just, he warms up. It's like a slow rotary wind up. And then he's in and he's focused and he's deliberating. Whereas I'm more of a sprinter, like quick dash. And then I'll mull it all day and I'll go, oh, that's an idea. Note that down. But then I'll come back to it the next day. Mm -hmm. I think like get rid of any of this romantic idea of writing that it's ever going to be like, I've got the perfect desk now and... Um, I'm writing this book so I'll clear my diary for six months and I shall write the novel <laughs> that wasn't my experience but it's it's still turned into a book mm. and finally are you able to tell us if you're working on anything new at the moment at the moment not book wise at the moment I'm working on a new stand-up show that is 
coming for spring 2023. Um, so that's kind of, I haven't done an hour stand-up show since 2019. So I wanted to mm. flip back that way for a bit. And I guess that takes up all of your creative energy. Well, you'd think that, but then the second I signed the thing and said, yes, I'll do three nights trying out this new show, obviously book idea after book idea flips <laughs> into your head because your brain is obtuse. Um, but yeah, it's it. I kind of have to have one thing bubbling. I've got a notepad of ideas for other things that I'm like, well, write that down and come back to it another time. But yeah, sort of seeking out new material slots and trying to think of the structure and working out what you want to say that that is kind of all of my energy at the moment well Laura thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today thanks for having me thank you that was Laura Lex talking about her commercial novel Pivot which is out now and available to buy and if you'd like to support this podcast debut authors and independent bookshops you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org which I've linked down below in the show notes If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and protecting. Potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.